Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Harpreet Sood and I'm an MPH student at the Department of Health Policy and Management here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you all for joining us today for the final decision-making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminar series for this academic year. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Governor Beverly Perdue. Governor Perdue served the citizens of North Carolina for more than 25 years until January 2013. In her role as a state's 73rd Chief Executive Officer, she managed a budget of more than $51 billion, some 275,000 state employees, and was responsible for the welfare of 9.6 million citizens. Facing a budget shortfall of 11% when she took office, Governor Perdue consolidated 13 state agencies into eight, prioritised and reduced spending, and invested heavily in education, technology, and transportation infrastructure for the state. Governor Perdue was selected as elected uh, as a state senate in 1981 and served for nine years and then became the first female elected lieutenant governor in 2002 and office she's held until her election as governor in 2009. Prior to elected office, Dr. Perdue served as the director of geriatric services for the Carolina East Medical Center, where she conceived and led an award-winning model of coordinated patient care from hospital administration to community placement. Earlier, she was a healthcare policy and grant writer for the East Carolina Regional Medical Center, where she designed, developed, and wrote award-winning grant proposals to various foundations, including a $1 million grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Her academic background includes a PhD in educational administration and a master's of education degree in college administration from the University of Florida, as well as a BA degree in history from the University of Kentucky. Before I turn the seminar over to Dr. Blendon, please join me in welcoming Governor Beverly Perdue today. Hi, if you allow me just uh, one personal note, because it's sort of advice to you. Uh, a former student of mine uh, worked for the governor and uh, called me on the phone and said, I'm working for this extraordinary governor. She's coming to Harvard. She has to meet the students. And so the only reason I'm raising this is when you go work for another extraordinary governor, I want you to call me on the phone. <laughs> and I, I, I want uh, her there. I want to ask uh, one uh, personal question, then we're really going to open up and, and interact this, is that you have to be struck uh, that the governor didn't come from a political family, came from Virginia, got a PhD in an area that's close to where we would be, and then entered uh, uh, politics in a really tough way. Now, she's going to disabuse me of this, but I think in the era she entered, it was pretty tough for a woman to pursue. As you can tell me, I'm wrong. Uh, but I think it was very it's tough. still pretty tough uh, for a yes. woman. Yes. <laughs> and so I thought for the next generation that's going to do this, how did you think this through, that career, the shift? Uh, that you were really going to enter this very different world. How did you make the switch in your own mind? Even before I answer your question, let me again brag on Bob. The student is a PhD leader of healthcare policy at the University of North Carolina, and he called me and says, if you're at Harvard, you've got to meet this incredible guy who was my mentor and who helped me get started. So thank you for that. And for those of you who are policy wonks, uh, if you can form a relationship with a Paul, like Dan Gitterman did with me, then that means the 
world is your oyster because you actually are entrusted with developing public policy at the state level. It's a pretty cool way to make really significant changes. So how did I do this, Bob? You know, I, you just play the hand you're dealt, I think. Uh, I was trained. I wanted to be the head of a gerontology center at Florida. I had the offer of a job to start out in a little teeny area. And as luck would have it, my family decided to move to North Carolina. I got to a state where there were very few women involved in public service or actually even employment back in those days. And I found a job where I could find it. I ended up working for a coalition of local governments. And you know, I found that I was pretty good at it. I liked collaboration. I liked compromise. I like risk taking. I liked having a bundle of money from the federal government to invest <laughs> uh, as I saw fit in a nine county area. So from there I began to think about uh, the services. I'm, I'm basically a, just a person who believes in what happens on the ground having to make a difference. And I saw a lot of my sick, older, frail, or disabled patients in North Carolina not having their needs met. And I looked in the mirror one night in this tiny little place called Newburn, North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina. Never had a woman even consider running for office. And one of the men was audacious enough to ask me why didn't I just stay in the house? That's where my place was. I had a t-shirt made that said a woman's place is in the House and in the Senate and in the White House. I was <laughs> so feisty back. But I, I decided that I, could, I had two choices, and I would urge you all to think about your choices someday. Uh, I could do what I was doing and sit around and whine. I could be someone who pointed fingers and said, oh, you can do this better. Why don't you do this or that? Or I could actually take a risk and try to become the agent of change. And I thought for myself and my own hope for change, I wanted to take that risk and let it lay where the voters decided to lay it. I was lucky, I won every race I ever ran, was the first woman a lot of times to win. But at the end of the day, the good old boys forgot that I was a woman. They only wanted to help me because they thought we could get things done together. Uh before I open it up, Governor, the, the uh, most serious moment I think anyone interested in human services would have could finally be arriving as governor and then discovering you have a multi-billion dollar budget problem. Uh, tell me how you go through that, because uh, you started with the human services side. You know what services and these issues are about. How did you go about living with the fact that every, for every public officer, the economic bottom fell out during those years? Well, I kept reminding myself, uh, Bob, that if I thought it was tough for me as the leader of a state in Duval's country, I won't call it the best state in North Carolina, but in, in the country, North Carolina, but in my heart, I do think it's the best state. Uh, you, you, again, think about the real people who've lost their jobs and who had nothing at all. And it makes you less likely to say, oh, woe is me, because you see real pain and real suffering. My state had an incredibly high unemployment rate, 11.5%. There were countless stories of people who had lost everything at 60, and we knew clearly they couldn't get another job. Uh, people would lose their house as a result. They lost their health insurance because we tie health care coverage, as you all know, to employment. And I just knew I had to do it. I came with a skill set. Maybe I was planted where I needed to bloom for that period in time. I came with a tremendously sophisticated skill set 
from having managed the budget as the Senate Appropriations Chair. I had the checkbook for six years. And so I knew where the waste was. I knew what services were critically important. I knew where I could cut without doing great damage. And I wasn't afraid, again, to take a risk. And so I consolidated government, made a lot of people really angry. I had to furlough state employees and teachers for the first time in the history of my state. One night um, early on, when I realized that we had a multi-billion dollar deficit, $11 billion to be exact, I sat down with myself, and it's a piece of advice I give leaders across the country, uh, young leaders, emerging leaders, and seasoned leaders, is that you got to know what's important to you. You've got to decide what it is that makes up my core value set and what is so important in my heart and in my head that I won't allow it to be damaged. And I looked at North Carolina and I made those decisions knowing that the results were going to be very unpopular, but you do what you think is right. And so I decided that the most important thing I could do for my state during this horrible time was to keep her moving forward, to not force her backwards, to not be draconian in the cuts, to invest in our people, in our schools, and in the future of our state, while also doing whatever it took to keep our budget balanced. You're looking at a governor of one of the six AAA bond-rated states in America all four years that I was governor. We have the highest credit rating of all but five other states in America. And you do that through good decision-making, through leadership, and through not being reluctant at all to make people mad. But you do it around your own value system, and you know what's important to you, what your core is. All right, we're going to open this up. I need to warn you, I have five other questions. So if you don't ask them, I will. <laughs> You're going to ask them. Just Come raise on. your hand. We'll move the mic around. Um, thank you for being here. My name is Monica Garcia. I'm an MPH student in healthcare policy and management. So coming, um, I'm from Los Angeles, but I know that there's migration of Latinos moving toward the southeast. Um, I know in 2010, North Carolina was the sixth, was the state with the sixth fastest growing Latino population. As a leader, how do you um, kind of acknowledge and work with these cha the changing face of your state? A lot of us are glad that it's changing, quite frankly. The, the demographics of America will change the political process in all 50 states. And I think for any of us to sit back and say we're not going to allow that to happen is being less than intelligent and forthright. I have been a, a, a real strong proponent of national immigration reform. And back as lieutenant governor, tried to work with President Bush and, and others around just doing some kind of national policy. I think it was futile for us to try to do 50 different platforms of immigration reform so that you wouldn't know what the rules were if you moved across the state's border. So we have been very welcoming in our state. Uh, I led the way to do tuition-free uh, tuition, in-state tuition for folks who were undocumented in North Carolina. A lot of controversy there. Uh, I completely changed the paradigm around children so that uh, families from undocumented who weren't Medicaid eligible could actually receive some Medicaid services. And we tried to make sure that our public school system and our pre-K system served all of the people because it's all of the people who are going to be your workforce. And I've continued to talk about the importance of uh, 
us being very respectful of different cultures and different kind of opinions. North Carolina, like California, like other states, is a melting pot. We have a really significantly increasing Latino population, but we also have a very front-loaded Asian population. So we are beginning to change as a state because so many of us have urged other people to move there. In this election cycle, we did a little bit of follow-up after the election, and we weren't at all surprised to find that about 35 to 40 percent of the people who voted in 2012 did not vote nor live in North Carolina in 2000. And so you can see the change in our state. The Raleigh Triangle area has the largest migration of college-educated 20-somethings of any place in the country. So we're red hot around young people wanting to come, we're red hot around old people wanting to come, and we're red hot around other people coming from other countries. We feel blessed. That was an advertisement for some of you who want to move. <laughs> I'll help you get a job. <laughs> uh, Secretary Bigby? Yeah. Why don't we do you first? We have plenty of time. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh. Good afternoon, Governor. My name's Ann Newland. I'm an MPH student in the Health Policy and Management Program. And I was wondering if you could speak to the legislative and political challenges of consolidating so many state agencies. It's hard. I mean, it's hard work. Change is, is hard in any institution, academics or government bureaucracies. It's just hard. And so my secretaries, the folks that I had asked to take jobs to lead departments, initially were my strongest opponents. They saw their platform changing, their fiefdom being narrowed. But it made great sense for me to consolidate technology, to have one uh, information and technology system for the state. It made great sense for me to combine our criminal justice system, to keep silos within the system, but not to have a, a freestanding department of children and youth uh, for corrections or for hard offenders. And it made fairly good sense to begin to consolidate uh, not just law enforcement, but general government services. And I just did that, and I did it around the rationale that people could understand. I had to cut government, I had to streamline inefficiencies and get rid of them, and the only way that you can do that is by consolidation. So yeah, were people mad? Yeah. And did people lose jobs? Not as many as you would think because of attrition. And is the state better off today? Yes, it is and have all of the systems meshed together? Yes, they have, but it's been five painful years. Come on, students, I'm here Secretary. for y'all. Well, uh, okay. Secretary, we need a mic. There we go. My esteemed Madam Secretary. It's so nice to have you here, Governor. I wonder if you would comment a little bit on um, ethical leadership. You introduced an idea uh, to make restitution to a group of people from your state from decades ago who had been subjected to forced sterilization. And um, why did you decide to uh, identify that as an issue that North Carolina should say this was not the right thing to do, and there is a way that we should demonstrate that it wasn't right and it should never happen again. Thank you for asking that question. It's a, just a hard period in 
history in America. It was something that I was totally unaware of until about a decade ago. Back uh, during a certain period of our history, there was forced sterilizations of both men and women. And if you read the data, and I have not just read the data, I have talked to some of the folks who were victimized, they actually told me that medical personnel, social workers and Department of Social Services uh, in the counties, and ministers urged them to be sterilized because at the end of the day, they were promised that they could then be re retrofitted so that the sterilization, sterilization procedure was uh, neutered. It was an awful thing to hear these men and women come into the room and talk about what their life was like and how the government had taken away from them the basic right to have children. And as you listened, you knew that North Carolina, as well as other states, it's just not North Carolina, had done really wrong. And I've always believed that if you've done something as an entity or as an individual that's really wrong, that you really should beg forgiveness and move on and get rid of that blot on your history. And so I decided that North Carolina was not only going to apologize, the governor who preceded me had apologized, but there were still living victims who were sterilized that were rightly saying there should be some kind of monetary retribution for the state. And I put that in my budget. It was very controversial. Again, our state is uh, changing tremendously in terms of uh, political viewpoints. The South is alive and well with the Tea Party, y'all know that. And so this kind of uh, decision making was not well received by many of the leaders of the General Assembly. Interestingly enough, the Speaker of the House supported me. So we got it through his budget, but we didn't get it through the Senate. And the discussion is still going on in my state Tragically, these people who've been sterilized are, some of them, in their late, to late 70s to early 80s, and we don't have much of a window of opportunity to fix this wrong. I would hope North Carolina would do that. Thank you for knowing enough about it to mention it. Other states should do it as well, not just our state. Other questions? Please, come on, that's why we're here. Um, my name is Zach Nider. I'm a and just excuse me, just a minute. I'm a, a former teacher. I'll call on you, so you better. <laughs> I'll call you out, so you all get ready. Okay? Yeah, you're Zach. Yes, I'm a two-year master's student in health policy and management. What are you going to do, Zach? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I'm asking myself the same thing. So. <laughs> well, I guess that actually leads in nicely to my question, which is that I imagine, and I could be wrong, that there's probably more policy wonks, future policy wonks in this room than politicians. And so I want to go back to what you, the earlier point you made about the most effective ways for people working in policy creation to, to see their, their hard work kind of implemented. And you mentioned that you can pair with, closely with politicians directly, and that's a great avenue. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about other avenues in terms of bridging that gap between policy creation and then policy implementation. You know, I was smart enough to bring around me people who were much smarter than me. I think that's a real clue about a good leader, is if you're not intimidated by having really smart staff. And I gravitated toward younger staff, quite frankly, because you all have so much energy and you're a little bit cheaper than the senior staff, like Bob's <laughs> age. And both of those make a difference in, in the government work. And so I found people both who were working with state government 
and the universities, both the private and the public universities of our state, who would give me advice. And then I went outside that traditional network. I actually went to, to organizations and coalitions of healthcare groups. Uh, Adam Searing, I don't know if you know the name, runs a wonderful platform of healthcare uh, organizations in our state. And they meet together. We have something called the North Carolina Covenant for Healthcare. And I would bring them to the mansion or to the lieutenant governor's office when I was LG, and I would ask their opinions, not just about health care, but about issues in general. And early on, I learned that when there was a health care issue going on in the family, it wasn't just about the person who was affected. It was about the whole personality of the family, the family dynamics. And so you began to rely not just on social workers and nurses, but on ministers and other organizations that you need. And then you come in with all the mental health issues and you think you need those kind of expertise. And so it became just kind of a consortium. So I stood up with the help of a great staffer, one of them was Dan, again, your protege, that met with advocates every month at the mansion or at the Capitol. And we had just this round table where we'd talk about issues and solutions. I would advise all of you, wherever you end up, to try to make something like that happen. You start out as a puppy, a little beginner around the committee conference room. But if you work at it and you come informed and your attendance is regular, you'll be amazed how quickly you become the leader. Maybe not the status leader, maybe not the earned leader, but the status leader. And how people respect you. And that's how you begin to build your credibility. Come on, yes. Governor, thanks so much for being here. I'm Rachel Liao, I'm a doctoral student in the biological sciences and public health. And I'm, um, I'm very interested in, in just hearing from you about, I think as a, as a leader with as diverse an experience that you've had in your career, if you could describe to us maybe your, um, your definition of success, what success means to you from your perspective and your experiences and and also just discuss some of the accomplishments that you're proud of through the course of your career. Oh, wow. Uh, I think success is defined by the individual. I've never been one that believed the people of North Carolina had a report card for me or that your degree, once you've earned it, somebody will have a report card for you. The grades are good to have while you're getting them, but they really don't change the outcome of your life. I mean, we all know that. And so the little things as well as the big things, Rachel, have been important to me. I, I've been one who has uh, not minded at all being a worker in the field. It's an analogous to taking a bucket and filling it full of sand. Uh, and if you fill the sand often enough into the bucket, the bucket soon is full, and you've made a great accomplishment, and you've been successful. And in politics, you learn that that's about the only way that solutions happen and that change happens. It's very difficult to do it all at once, a la healthcare in America. It may take 20 years of discussion and fighting, but if you labor long enough in the vineyard and you do it with data and with passion, then you can have that change happen in your lifetime. That's how I equate <coughs> success, not just the one-time front page article, although I've had my share of those good and bad, I want you to know. And what do I consider the most successful thing that I've done? Uh, Bob, may I? Absolutely, I was gonna ask you, Thank so you. it's simpler. Uh, <laughs> I've thought a lot about it. You know, I've done this for 25 years, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit of a story. 
when I was lieutenant governor, the lieutenant governor of most states don't have enough to do. There is no job description for lieutenant governor. It's kind of like being vice president. And you have to figure out, well, it's true, what it is you're good at doing and what it is that you can make really important work and change for the country or your state. And somebody told me it was like a blank sheet of paper in your office. You had the oil marker. You could do whatever you wanted to do. So I decided to do two things. I decided to do military jobs because we're a military state. And I decided to do health care and making some political trades that weren't important to me, I convinced the incumbent governor to appoint me as chair of the North Carolina Health and Wellness Trust Fund, which meant that I now had another pot of money I was in control of because we had all of the tobacco settlement money from the major tobacco cases. So I had about $280, $300 million a year that I could invest through the Health and Wellness Fund in things that I thought would make tremendously significant long-term changes or results for my people. And so I began to read about what you guys were doing in Boston and in New York and in California and, you know, the, the work being done on tobacco. Somewhere at the business school this morning, there was an article on the wall about when the onslaught against tobacco began in this country. It was in the mid to late 90s. I'm from North Carolina, and now if you don't know the history of North Carolina, North Carolina is the original tobacco belt. RJR Reynolds Tobacco, Phillips Tobacco, everybody in North Carolina at one time or the other smoked or had stock in a smoking company or worked on a tobacco farm. It's a huge enterprise in North Carolina. And as I began to think about teen smoking and stepping out there on the dangers and trying to prevent it, my political guys and gals said, Bev, you got to be kidding me. You'll never get elected. And so you have that conversation with yourself. If I can make a difference, maybe, and help keep kids healthier, maybe save some lives. I'll never be able to prove it, but I would bet the work we've done in North Carolina has actually saved lives. I thought that'd be a pretty cool thing to do with my life, even if I never won another race. And so I didn't care so much about the consequences but I was smart. I brought all my health people around me, my team, my community advisors, and we set up a program that's been modeled all over the country where we went into every county in the state, a hundred, and set up little teenage health advisory non-smoking commissions. And so you had this hundred thousand kids roaming all over the state telling mom and dad how dangerous it was to smoke, going to school board meetings and saying, why don't you, Mr. Superintendent, make it wrong for us to smoke on these school grounds? And after two years, there was just an onslaught of public support. I wouldn't let the media campaign ever get away with the body bag ads because, again, I had to tend to the business of tobacco in North Carolina, and I didn't want to intimidate or to accuse the tobacco companies. All I wanted, know your outcome. My advice is know your outcome. All I wanted was for my high schools and community colleges and universities, my eighth graders not to think about smoking, to say no to tobacco. We have in North Carolina the lowest teen and college smoking rate in the history of our state. We can give you the data now about the ultimate lives that we've saved. So all of the work that I've done around public policy issues and good government issues and all of this stuff at the end of my life won't measure up at all to the fact 
that maybe for this brief period in time, working with a lot of people, we had the guts to take on something that was untouchable and to make significant change and to save lives. Y'all in healthcare, that's what you do every day. It doesn't get any cooler than that. Hard to follow with another question, <laughs> but let's try. Governor Pick. Oh, I get to pick. Oh, I, not I, the microphone man. <laughs> Good afternoon, Governor. Uh, my name is Denise Safwaje. I'm um, in the one-year MPH program in Health Policy and Management, and I'm a I'm a medical student, so I have to go back to medical school. <laughs> so you're doing both of them. There are three or four of you here. Yeah, today. I'm at the University of Michigan Medical School, so Good I'll be going you. back in a month. Um, so my question you was... You want to leave um, Michigan, come to North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. The weather will be better, too. Um, I can promise so, you that. <laughs> So I was just curious. I'm, I'm um, I think, in the long term, really interested in um, politics, and I've always um, been very passionate about policy. And I know that when you entered politics, it wasn't necessarily something that was always on your mind. So I wanted to know if you can just discuss um, different things that you had to do to kind of immerse yourself in being a viable candidate to enter politics and any advice you would have for people that are thinking about it and who are in completely different fields like medicine and how you would um, navigate kind of entering that um, political sphere. You know, Betty asked me, Betty, who's wonderful, thank you very much for your help. Betty asked me to name, he said, Bob wants you to name what you're going to talk about. And I sat down for 30 seconds, as I'm prone to do, didn't give it a lot of thought, and said, leadership, uh, it's kind of cool. Own it, and you can be it. And that's a bit of a message to you all. If you know that you're good at whatever it is you do, you don't go out there and preach it, and you don't have a sense of arrogance around you. But through the work you do daily, that goodness and purpose and those brains will show forward. And people will begin to listen to you and respect your opinion. That's what I'd done as uh, a young healthcare person, as somebody who couldn't find a job, as somebody who landed with luck into something I loved. I think about anything you do, you can love if you figure out a way to make it work for you, quite frankly. And then I think you just have to come to the decision that a lot of the myths, and they are myths, that you hear about politicians, about somebody knocking on your living room door and saying, hello, hello, we've come to ask you to run because you can save the world. That's just hogwash. It doesn't happen that way. What usually happens is that you have this little spark somewhere inside of you, and you work in whatever your field is, and you figure out, wow, I need to fix this, or you look at some of the folks who are elected in your community and you think, well, they're getting old or maybe or they need to make, maybe they'll get out of politics. I could, or maybe you look at them as some do and they looked at me this way, I'm sure, and say, my God, if she can do it, anybody can do it. And so you run for whatever reason and then you're not afraid. I tell my students at the Kennedy School that if I were you all, I would have a deep and versatile contact list for the time I leave here. Bob, isn't that good advice? Yes. Bob still keeps up with his protege, Dan Gitterman, weekly probably. You keep in touch with people. You build that contact base because if you decide to run, the nasty fact is you've got to be able to raise money and you've got to have people who help you. There is not one of you who couldn't be good at whatever you chose to do. So I pray that some of you choose to run for office, whether it's the school board or the metro sewer district, or whether it's president of the United States. We so desperately need people 
not just with good brains and not just with passion for politics, but also with good hearts who understand how important healthcare is to all of the people. So some of you all run. Um, I'm Candy Liang. I'm also a two-year student, master's student from the health policy and uh, management department. Um, my question is on mentorship. Um, how important is mentorship for you in your road to success? And especially, how did you find these helpful mentors since you were charting your own path and you were first in a lot of things? That's a really incredibly important question. And, and some folks are doing a, a book about my life. And the only real failure where I've quit something uh, was I'm, I was one of three women accepted to law school at Virginia back in the early 70s. It was a big deal. I mean, to get in, I, it was just a big deal. I can't tell you what a big deal it was. Nobody did it. Women didn't work, much less go to law school. I didn't know a woman lawyer. I'd never met a woman lawyer, Bob. I don't, I don't know that there was even that kind of species in my environment. Uh, and I get to law school where a lot of kids, a lot of students are coming. I'm not making excuses. It's just the way it was. A lot of students had come from great northern Ivy schools. A lot of students had come from different kind of, you know, here I am, a coal miner's daughter with a degree from Kentucky, going to law school. One of the, I didn't fit, and I couldn't find anybody to talk to. The only person that I knew was a lawyer was from my little coal mining town. And I'd talk to him, and he thought I was talking about Venus and Mars or something. I mean, I couldn't relate. I learned during that experience because I quit after a semester. I just said, this is not for me. I don't want to spend my life being miserable. I made a mistake. And I talked publicly about making a career decision without the proper data set. The reason I didn't have the proper data set is because I didn't have anybody to ask the right questions of. So as a result, one of the best parts of the last 25 years for me has been a mentor. I have loved taking time and making time to have young people or older people, wherever you are in your careers, sit with me. I don't offer to be a profound sage, but I am wise enough to listen and I'm honest enough to offer advice when solicited. All of you, you're going to have a great degree from one of the best schools in the world. I hope that you take time to be mentors the way this man has mentored his protege for more than 15 years. Yes. I mean, he never <laughs> said no. It's, it's something. You know, this is actually about her, by the way. No, it's, it's, there, I, I really do believe I, it's not about your religion or your faith or, or any of that. I won't go into that. But I believe you're put here, and you've got to leave it better than you found it. And you've got to pass it on. And I think at some point in your life, that passing it on means to hand it over to the next generation and do it with zest. Just to follow up on that, did somebody in politics over time play that role, or you really had to do it on your own in terms of building a career? A lot of people played that role for me. Jim yeah. Hunt, who is one of my dearest friends and one of my biggest mentors, was governor of North Carolina for four terms, back when you could be governor for four terms. And he has been very generous in, in talking to me over the years. There were not a lot of women. I, one of the funniest stories, may I tell a funny yeah, story? Sure. Uh, one of the I was I was sorry. One of the funniest stories was back uh, in the late '90s when I was Senate Appropriations Chair. You know, we were trying to do this budget in the middle of the night, and 
the boys just weren't playing nice. No offense, guys. They just, and I got up. I was all huffy and mad, and I never lose my temper. I prided myself over not being really one to lose their temper. I had had all I could stand. I stood up from the table and slammed my hand on the table and said, I have had enough. I'm out of here. And I went to the ladies' room, and about two minutes later, one of the older women in the General Assembly who had been there, she was from Charlotte, she was in her 90s then. She had served forever, and she was just kind of the queen of the General Assembly of North Carolina. She came in the bathroom, and she said to me, Beverly, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you just get yourself together and get back in there. <laughs> she was my mentor, and I thought that was good advice. Get yourself together and get back in there. I respected that. And so you take mentoring in whatever size or shape it comes in, and you're better off for it. I'm not calling on you. You just stand up. This is Bob's show. I'm glad he's letting me run it. Good afternoon, Governor. My name is Cindy Serafin Hatcher. Um, I'm an MPH student here in the Social and Behavioral Sciences Department, and I'm also a medical what? Social and Behavioral Sciences. Oh, wow. Um, I'm also a medical student here at Harvard Medical School. Um, I'm a Duke graduate, so I'm quite familiar with the state. Okay. <laughs> You're very <I'm> smart. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I had to ask you about your experience and your perspective about leading change when there's resistance and how you would navigate um, an area where you feel passionate about something, but there's quite strong resistance. I think that any time, Bob, help me here, I, I think that change itself is partly defined by resistance. Change is just not easy. It doesn't matter where it is, even for your child's kindergarten class. Change is hard, even for two- and three-year-olds. And so by the time you get to 40 or 50, and you've got a whole parcel of academic or political credentials, and somebody is telling you what to do with your agency or what to do with your state, that's hard. But I believe, and I would urge you to give me advice, my mentor. I, I think that you need to have, again, this group of people around you who can advise you on what pieces of change are acceptable now, but to keep your eye on the ultimate change you want to accomplish. When I restructured government in North Carolina, I didn't have any choice. You know, I had a constitutional mandate in North Carolina to balance the budget. I had to get there. I had four and a half months to do it. And I knew that there was going to be blood in the streets. And so I thought, this is going to save the state hundreds of millions of dollars. It's going to be tough to swallow. I didn't have time to negotiate feelings and people. I just said, look, I'm the governor, and we're going to do this unless you figure out how to stop me. But I had a lot of advice from people that I trusted who told me it was good to do, it was important work, and it, that it was doable or I wouldn't have done it, you know. But at the end of the day, somebody has to take the blame or somebody has to take the credit. So if you're the agent of change and the change is difficult, know that if it fails, there are going to be people turning cartwheels on your grave. But if it succeeds, they're all going to be saying, didn't we do a good job making change happen? You can do it. Another question. I think we've made him afraid not to ask questions, Bob. Hi, I'm Miranda Daniloff-Mancusi, and I'm working with Bob here in the division. Um, my question has to do with work-life balance. 
uh, and what advice you would give, uh, not just to women, because I don't think it's just a woman's issue, um, but to all young people who want to have families and have a balanced life, how do you do that and also build a career? We've talked about that a lot this semester. Thank you for asking the question, and I think it's something that all of you ask yourselves, whether you are brave enough to ask it publicly or not. Everybody needs to figure out how to do it for themselves. I'll tell you a couple of tips, and then I'll tell you how I did it, and it didn't always work. I learned early on what was important to me. Uh, obviously, my family, my children, and my job. For me, my church was important. And so I knew those were priorities for me, those three things. And if I had to choose, I chose my two sons because I was a single mom for several years over anything else. I drove two and a half, three hours every time they played soccer from Raleigh to their, I never missed a ball game. That kind of makes me the paragon of good mothering. I remind my children it's Mother's Day next week. I'm the paragon. <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, I said very openly that I gave up some of my friends, and that was hard. And I found, though, after 25 years of it, the friends that love me have allowed me to helicopter in and out of their lives when I have the time, and they don't hold it against me. They take me as I am because they know that someday we'll have real quality of time. And then I, a tip for you all that you may not have ever thought about. Maybe you do because you're the new greatest generation. Bob, I figured out early on that I needed to get up early in the morning and I needed an hour and a half or two hours of my own space. And so I have been adamant. Some of my business partners would call me unacceptably improper to refuse breakfast meetings. I don't take a breakfast meeting that doesn't start after 8.15. So I'm up every morning. Seriously, I don't. I'm up every morning at 5 o'clock. I read all the papers now on the internet, five or six papers. I do my email with my staff all over the country or world. And then I run for an hour every day. I run. It's kept me healthy. It's kept me sane. And it's allowed me to have my own time and space to think. I think from my perspective at my age now that the most dangerous thing for really passionate leaders like y'all all are, is to carve out no time in your day to think. Because you can't be successful at whatever it is you want to do without having thought it out and figured out a plan to make it happen. And if you go to work where the phone is ringing and you've got 7,000 emails and 26 hours of work and an 18-hour day, you'd never have time to think. I think that great leaders, great academics, figure out a way to take time to think. Uh, Governor, can I ask one sort of a start <laughs> question? It's your show. Uh, I doubt it. But the, um, uh, you were governor uh, in a uh, state where the Affordable Care Act was and remains still quite controversial. You watched and participated with the president and congressional leadership developing this. Are there some lessons and observations for next time people try to do this, thinking about how it is that you would reflect upon from both your role and where you watch this process go on? I was involved uh, to some extent, as all of the governors were. Um, you were involved. A lot of people were involved. I, I'm very troubled. I don't know if y'all are following the conversation around 
the Affordable Care Act in the last two weeks, it's been very negative conversation from members of both parties. Uh, there is great uh, gnashing of teeth out in America over the fact that there will be some premium charges kick in. You know, I came to the whole discussion from a position of believing that health care is a right. I'm naive enough to believe that. I don't believe that if my dad and mom don't have a job, I shouldn't be able to get a shot when I have some kind of tonsillitis or whatever you give shots for you doctors. I, I just believe that people ought to have access to health care. And I also know enough to believe that if I could see the doctor when I'm healthy and figure out a way to perhaps live differently and front load our system with wellness rather than care at the end, I don't believe what we do in this country is health care. I believe it's sick care. I believe we take care of the people when they're sick. And so for me, Bob, it was about having that whole bucket of things that I believed and was passionate about. And again, I was lucky enough to be the governor. And I got to choose for North Carolina whether we were going to participate, knowing full well that because I was not going to be the governor today, that depending on the election, there would be a repositioning for North Carolina. And that repositioning happened. Uh, my state has refused to participate, and the feds are going to have to do it. I think it's really, really a hard time. I, I want this to succeed so much, you all. I was part of the discussion in the early 90s when uh, the Secretary of State was the leader on health care. And we did a kind of an analogous state initiative in North Carolina. And when the fed, federal initiative went up in flames, obviously ours went up in flames. So it's taken us 20 years to get to this point where we really might have something. And as governor, I just thought, why in the world aren't we willing to take a chance? It's the thing that cripples families, you all. You just can't imagine. I have a special needs, 100% special needs granddaughter. She's 16. And I have seen the trauma, the emotions, the hardship on the family and the other two children. I have watched them actually declare bankruptcy. And I think a system that works that way to people who did, Rachel didn't do a thing. She was born that way. I mean, how can we as humans not take care of each other? So I'll fight for it to the end. If it continues to have bad things said about it, I'll go to Washington and testify again. I will pick it in the streets. I'm a free agent now. I can do whatever I want. And I think it's really important. Thank you for your part in it. Timidly front row. <laughs> Thank you, Governor Padu. My name is Al Paddock. I'm an MPH student uh, majoring in policy and management. Um, thank you for being here. And if I could continue on the theme of some of the challenges that are facing um, public health in, in the United States. Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on the um, recent failure of the gun legislation lobby that occurred um, in Washington, D.C. I'm a physician practicing in Australia, and prior to the implementation of gun legislation in Australia, we had um, 13 uh, massacres in 18 years. And since the implementation in 1996, we've had zero. And I was wondering if um, you could uh, comment on the reasons for the failure and what you would do to um, 
have that legislation passed. Thank you. Um, um, congratulations on your success. I envy it, and it's not proper to envy, I guess, on a Thursday. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can envy on Sunday because you get forgiveness. Uh, I, I, first of all, I'm a hunter. I duck hunt with my boys. I mean, I'm from North Carolina. We all duck hunt. We, you know, so I, I'm a member of the NRA. I've, I've been a lifetime member of the NRA. I've been pro-gun rights, and so I'm a big believer in the Second Amendment. But I also am such a pragmatist that I don't know why Johnny Smith in Niebuhr, North Carolina, needs an assault rifle. I just can't figure that out. And I don't know why we would want to have somebody who didn't meet our background checks have a gun. And I actually don't know why the NRA has not been part of the solution. I'm really troubled by that. I was troubled last night. I mean, I, like you all, watch the news. And whether you believe it or not, I tend to believe it most of the time. I heard a United States senator talk about the fact that there was a perception that people didn't want to do this because it would give the president a win. I find that unacceptable in this country, that our politics has gotten, if that's the data set we're working from, that our politics is so broken that folks we send to Washington can't do something as fundamentally important as figure out what's wrong with guns and fix it. And instead of doing their job, they get caught up in one-upsmanship to punish somebody of, against their persuasion. I think there's something wrong in America right now. I believe that any elected or former elected in the country, if they were speaking to Bob in your forum or if they were together on a panel in Washington or New York or California, where I've been recently, would say the same thing, that something is broken and it must be fixed in America. There are too many good people who don't want to run for office because they cannot get anything done in Washington and how frustrating and futile that must be. Leadership, lack of leadership. You want me to tell you how I really feel? <laughs> microphone? Hi, my name is Annie Kearns. I'm a two-year master's student in the Department of Global Health and Population. And as a fellow North Carolinian, I really appreciate you being here. Good for you. Where are um, you from? I'm from Chapel Hill. So am I. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm going to work at Duke. <laughs> <laughs> this is somewhat more of a specific question, but as someone who's done so much for healthcare in our state, I'm wondering, you know, as you said, you were a free agent. If it were up to you, what would be the public health priorities for our state that you see? The public priority for me, first of all, is prevention. Uh, just the things that we've done with children's health insurance, I continue to expand that. When the legislature wouldn't give me the money to expand that, I found a way to find the money in my health and human services budget working with my secretary. I, I, I think that the biggest challenge medically in the country that none, none of us are talking about is this huge group that I'm part of, the boomers, who are aging, who are going to eat up the acute care dollar the last six months to a year of their lives. And I don't know any governor much, even me. I worked a little bit on it, but it wasn't my priority. Any governor, any mayor, any county commissioner chair that is really focused on what we're going to do as a country. because. 
that in itself is an issue that will eat up every available health care dollar in the country. And I worry about that. I worry that you'll get to the point in this country where you have seniors having to compete with kids because there's only so much money in the pot. And so the question will become, do you fund seniors' health care or whatever, or do you fund education? I was at a speech in Arizona last week where I was audacious enough on the panel to say perhaps if we're serious about children's, young children's education in pre-K, maybe we ought to start an AARP for four-year-olds because that lobbying group is so powerful. So there are so many important health care issues. AIDS, how long has it been since this country has had a discussion about AIDS again? but yet we understand that those numbers are beginning to change. Uh, what happened to us on that? Uh, I, I don't know what it is that we need to do to focus on investment in research and technology. You know, the NSF and NIH dollars are being cut. What do you do without that basic research? Because we all know that research drives innovation in healthcare and change. Some of you all are great researchers. I mean, these are generational questions that must be answered. And I'm one to say that my generation likely is not going to answer them. And so it's going to be up to you all to make sure that the country understands where our priorities are. And from my perspective, if I might be so bold, I think your priorities have to be around investing in the next generation because they are the workers that will keep the country thriving to then support the things that I will need as a senior. Profound discussions. Hi, my name is uh, Ali Chisti, and I'm also an MPH student and a medical student from Oregon. We, I have a question from for Oregon. you. Yeah, yeah. Have you met Governor Kitzhaber from yes, there? Yes, I have, and, and your other governors too. Yeah. Um, we talk a lot about leadership skills and. You're a very eloquent speaker, and you have really good eye contact, and you're engaging as well. Do you have any suggestions for us on how to become better with our communication skills, or how to, or maybe how you became so great? At <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to give you a job. <laughs> if I were with my team, I would say that was a major kiss up. <laughs> I, I don't know that. Thank you for the compliment. I don't know that. I, First of all, let me tell you what I've told my Kennedy students, and I'm sure you all do it over here, Bob. I, none of my students had business cards. So I said, go out today and spend whatever you might spend doing something else and get yourselves a business card so that when you meet somebody, they know that you're important. It's really important to have those little calling cards of the trade. And even if you throw them away when you graduate and get a job, they'll be worth it over the people that you'll meet. And that's how you build your contact list. Uh, you got to let people know who you are, own it, and be proud of it. Uh, the, the other thing that I haven't had to work on here, but I've worked on some at home, because I've had, you all, coming from where I've come from, I've interviewed hundreds of people, hired hundreds, fired thousands of people. The, the soft skills are so important. What you wear when you come in, what you say, how you present yourself. The handshake is so important and when somebody's you know, the limp, you, you do, and look people in the eye, just common communication skills. Those things are so important 
in a competitive world. I didn't make one hire for the last two years that we didn't do a thorough social media check. Whatever you put on Facebook or Instagram, it is there. Ask the folks who are involved in this terrorism incident. I mean, it is there. You can't get rid of it. Don't write it unless you want to read it on the front page of the globe. And then, again, the thing that I believe you've got to do that's so hard for you all, and I don't know why, is you've got to be so confident in yourself. You would not be sitting here on this campus if you weren't the best in the country or the world. And you have to leave here believing that about yourself. And so when you go in for an interview, you just walk in with such an air of confidence, but yet humility. And don't ask for the $150,000 right out of the bat. <laughs> Prove yourself and earn it. And y'all are going to be great. You're going to be great. Communication is about a lot of different things. It isn't just about talking or eye, eye contact. I had a girl yesterday walk in my office. She had an outfit that I wouldn't let my five-year-old granddaughter out in. I just thought, you should know better. And those are the soft skills that you can't teach. You've just got to have it in your head. In closing, I have to ask the question that everybody here wants to ask is, are you going to go back into politics? <laughs> you know. You're, you're terrific. I mean, you managed to have 150 votes right here. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Do you think about that, or do you think it's a stage, but then you have to go on and do something else? I, I, thank you for asking. Yeah. I, I really do believe that we all reach a point. Look at my resume risk taker every seven or eight years. I change. I've, it's how I've lived my life. I, I think you do something, or for me, I do it, Bob, and I, I just wear out. I'm no good at it anymore. And I feel like life is so short that every day you've got to feel pretty good about what you're doing or you're wasting your time. And so I decided when I didn't run again that I'm done with, I have turned down four or five jobs, uh, offers. I've, you know, it's not that uh, I don't want a job. The headhunter that I talked to the other day said, Dr. Purdue, you actually know what you don't want to do. Your problem is you don't know what you want to do. And I, I don't know. Uh, I, I do want to spend the next decade living a life of purpose and perhaps passing it on. And however that takes me, we'll see. But do I intend to ask anybody for money or a vote again? Not in this lifetime. <laughs> Good. Thank the governor. But she has to understand that whatever your next role is, you will get 50 business cards. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for coming. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.